Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. I got to speak with Dr. Paul Saladino today. The first time Paul was on the podcast, we spoke mostly about his book, The Carnivore Code. The Carnivore Code played a big role in my own journey of wellness as I learned a different way to look at nutrition. It really opened my eyes to the value of a nose-to-tail approach with animal-based nutrition. And I also learned a lot of things about some hidden pitfalls when relying heavily on the plant kingdom for nutrition. It's been very impactful and it's helped me a lot along the way, making improvements in my gut health and just my overall sense of well-being. Now, what I've noticed from watching Paul over the last few years is he's changed his mind about some things. And I'm really grateful that he has because it's allowed me to keep my mind open and change my mind about the very same things. And it seems like we've landed, at least for now, in a very similar position as far as how we look at food. Now, I didn't want to talk too much about food today. I really wanted to explore the idea about what it's like to change your mind and how important it is to notice your attachments and, the, your, and to practice a willingness to let go of them and to stay curious. And I think Paul sets a tremendous example in that regard. It's really inspirational watching him grow and shattering old beliefs and then showing other people how to do so. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the episode. Paul Saladino, thanks again for joining me again on the Mindful Movement Podcast. Thanks for having me back. It's good to see you. Um, we talked a while back, early in the in my podcast journey, and it was mostly about food. You had a an integral role in directing my like uh, journey of learning how to eat in regards to trying to manage my health. And watching you over these last couple of years, I've noticed that you've changed a lot in how you approach that. And I've been fortunate enough not just to be introduced to a lot of the values of what you've been preaching over the last few years, but also to change with you. And I feel like we've landed in a very similar spot. Mm -hmm. It's been an interesting process. Um, one, it's been interesting to see the response that I see in the fake world of internet of how you're treated for that, <laughs> which is unfortunate. And also, it's been really inspiring 
to watch you stay curious and not be attached to beliefs. So I want to thank you for your curiosity and and your ability to inspire others to stay curious. Oh, thanks, man. I hope it's helpful for people. Oh, a ton, a ton. Yeah. It reminds me, I remember, I forget who the author was. I was listening to an interview of an author who had had like several books and the interviewer said, what's your like best book or favorite book? And they said, my next one, you know, like we hold people accountable in weird ways as if we don't expect them to grow. Like once you say something, you can't, you're not allowed to say something different. It's weird. Yeah, books are strange. You know, I wrote The Carnivore Code in 2019, I guess, and it was published in 2020. That book was published right before the pandemic. And as you've suggested, a lot of my ideas have evolved since then. Um, Not all of them, but I mean, some of them, a lot of them have changed and matured or they're slightly different. And it was like, I wrote a book and then almost immediately when the book was published, I thought, I have to write another book or I don't like that book. I wish, (laughs) I wish media were more living than it is in that form. You know, I was recently in New York city and I went to the Morgan library, which is JP Morgan's private like study. And they have all these artifacts on display from this, you know, like oil mogul. There's banking mogul. I guess he was a banking mogul from the late 1800s and his, his family. And they had these cuneiform tablets from Sumeria, these, thousand year old tablets. It's just like humans have been inscribing things into clay and putting things down in a, in a, in a stone, you know, written in stone, literally. And it's just, it's not a great way to do things because it doesn't allow for a lot of flexibility and people will constantly find the book, the carnivore code. And I'm proud of it. I never thought I could write a book. I didn't think I could even do that. And I got into it and I thought, this is fun. I had fun with the humor. It was interesting to research it and try to make ideas. And I ended up writing a book that was probably 400 pages. And then I had to cut it down. It was 140,000 words. I didn't even think I could write. No, I was scared of writing a 10 page research paper when I was in middle school and high school. But then it just, people find the book. And like I said, I'm proud of it. But then they say, but you, you, you're not, you're not still afraid of fruit or you're a fan of fruit now, or in the book, you say fruit and honey are not good for humans, but that's you're now you're saying that this is something that humans should eat or could eat. And I think, yeah, I, I don't know why it's so hard for people to understand that. <laughs> like, maybe because they don't, they don't find the current set of ideas. I guess social media is a double-edged sword and it exposes us to way too many opinions about our work. You kind of mentioned that people come back at you in negative ways when you change your mind. But the nice thing about social media is it's more of a living thing. I can make videos about how I'm thinking today and what my views are and they evolve over time. But the book is challenging and I don't necessarily have any plans to write a new one. I just hope that the book helps people find the beginning of those ideas. And then they transition to other more living forms of ideas like my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health or the social media, Instagram, TikTok, wherever people want to watch that. But it's it's a humbling, interesting thing. My son says you're all over TikTok. I'm not on the TikTok yet. Neither am I, but I guess I am. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the book was fantastic. It was pivotal for me. It was um, very detailed about some really interesting things, especially about like early human stuff. I don't remember. I haven't, it was a while. I read it right when it came out. So it's not fresh me, but there's some ideas that um, I remember you talking about, which this might actually be relevant to what you just alluded to about like fruit and honey. I remember you talking about how when we started eating meat, 
the relationship of the size of the large intestines and small intestines shifted, which really begs the question, well, we still have the large intestine. Like they got, they got smaller, was there for something. Like if we had no need. Yeah, I mean, it could become completely vestigial. I think even the appendix has a function and people oh, take sure. that out all the time. Yeah. But yeah, that, that whole idea is the expensive tissue hypothesis. There's this great mystery of human history and human evolution that I write about in the book, The Carnivore Code, which is kind of a fun part of the book, which is why our brains got so big, how humans became human. And, you know, some people believe that we were just created 6,000 years ago, poof, you know, that's how we got there. And, you know, a lot of scientists look at the archaeology and say, hey, there were these primates, Australopithecines that were sort of in between chimps and bonobos. And then there were these skeletons of Homo habilis and Homo erectus and, and then eventually Homo sapiens 400,000 years ago. And somewhere along that route between Australopithecus, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, and Homo sapiens, the brain really began to grow from 500 cc's to about 1500 cc's. And that's fascinating when you think about the fact that our primate ancestors, chimps and bonobos, had 60 million years of evolution before us with about the same size of brain. And then suddenly humans break off from that and our brain triples in size and that changes everything. So there's an interesting story there. Like, why was it? Some people believe it was aliens, right? Some people believe we were eating uh, psychedelic mushrooms. You know, there's the stoned ape theory from uh, Dennis McKenna and Terrence McKenna. And my, my suspicion is that it had to do with our hunting practices and there's evidence in the, you know, in the, in the historical records show that we were using stone tools, these Acheulean tools at that time, 2 million years ago, right when the brain started to grow, we started to use stone tools. There was mass graves of hunting animals. Like they would, we run them off cliffs. People have seen this in movies, Buffalo runs where they, uh, you know, primitive quote humans, not so primitive, pretty smart humans and pre-hominids would, would herd animals, hundreds of Buffalo off a cliff. And then just they would feast on them and take what they could. And then a lot of them would be left to rot. Um, but that was how they killed animals. They killed many of them together. So we see all of this start to happen around the same time. And then we see the cranial vault start to grow. And it's just a very interesting argument around, I think one of the most important questions that we can answer for humans from a nutritional medical perspective, even in 2023, which is crazy, is whether or not we should eat meat and, and organs. It's all wrapped into it, right? So very few people eat organs, but organs have unique nutritional roles and nutritional content. But I think that there's, it's a pretty divisive question. Is meat good for us or is meat bad for us? And that's, I think that's a pivotal question for humans because what I've observed and what I think the research suggests, and when you look at this history of where we've come from, is that we were made human by our consumption of animals, meat and organs. And so to suggest that humans could live optimally, love optimally, be empathetic, be as creative as possible without these sort of nutrient-rich foods in our diet that perhaps shaped us and were the spark that made our brains grow. That's a hard, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to wrap my head around. And I think that it's at least an anthropological suggestion that these foods are they're 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 a part of who we are as humans. They're written into our DNA and to exclude them is to um, is to really sacrifice a lot of our potential as humans. All right. Yeah, I think um I think that's been made pretty clear to me. And I, I know I, I try not to be attached to my ideas, but I've not been convinced otherwise. Like I feel pretty strongly um, about that for now. Uh, of course, and I, well, I didn't want to talk too much about food, but I'm sure we will. Um, 
like I work in the gym and it's funny. Um, when I was a new trainer, I thought I was really good. And now I've been doing it for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And um, it's, I think it's the best training I've ever done. And I think that next year will be hopefully better. But like the more, the more I learn, the more I understand, the more I realize in the scheme of things, the less I know compared to what potentially learnable. Like um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, knowledge is the biggest obstacle to understanding. Mm. And I think a lot of the people in the health and fitness and uh, mindfulness world online, you know, they come off it, they're experts, self-proclaimed experts. They know things. And it's like, oh, as soon as you know, as soon as, as soon as you call yourself an expert, you know, you're, you're giving up. It's like, it's like the, you have all this passion and enthusiasm, which is fantastic. It makes people want to hear what you have to say. It's clear that you believe it. It radiates off you. This positive energy is, and you have a positive outlook, it seems, but passion enthusiasm is like a, it will like compete with curiosity. You typically it can compete with curiosity because as you get more excited about sharing whatever you think you understand, you naturally will dig your heels like you're creating an identity of some sort. And then like you just you get in your own way and you have, um, I think, are really practicing very well showing people how to stay curious and layer that with that passion enthusiasm. And I hope so. Energy. Thanks for that feedback. It, it hasn't, I think it's not always been that way. At times I've been more dogmatic than other times <laughs> and it's been a fun process of learning, but yeah, I mean, I guess for people that aren't familiar with my work, I'll just say briefly that my perspective is that animal meat, muscle meat and organs are the center of an optimal human diet. And that beyond that, um, if we choose to eat plant foods, we have to consider a spectrum of toxicity. And I think a lot of people don't understand that plants contain toxins. And so, but as I've discussed that more and more, I've tried to remain as open as possible. And I've tried to frame it in the most palatable way for people by saying, and this is an evolution, this is what we're talking about. This is an evolution in the way that I'm trying to share it with people. I try to say to them, if you are thriving, and that's obviously subjective and probably has to do with anyone's individual awareness, but if someone is thriving, don't change anything about your diet. But if you're not thriving, if you have sleep apnea, insomnia, mood issues, skin issues, autoimmune issues, depression, anxiety, psychiatric issues, right? Um, gut issues, gas, bloating, constipation. If you have low energy, if you want to lose weight, if your libido isn't great, if you have infertility or painful periods or irregular periods as women, like anything that can affect a human, then at that point, I believe it's important that we all become curious and we all start to question what it is that we're doing that might be triggering those things. And this is a really different perspective than what Western medicine teaches doctors and that I think gets passed on to patients, those of you know us when we become unwell. And we all become unwell at some point in our lives. But the perspective that I was taught was sort of, we don't know what causes X, Y, Z. I don't think there was much of anything in medical school that I was taught 
to understand the cause of. But what we do have are these great pharmaceutical medications, which you should take or you should give to your patients, and that will make them happy. And the problem is that when people go to their doctors, the doctors don't become curious, probably because of time constraints and insurance and legal concerns about not doing the standard of care. And so if the doctor's not curious, often the patient's not curious. And the, the sort of the, the subtle, not so subtle programming propaganda is you're broken. We don't know how to fix you. It's probably your bad genetics. So here's a pill. It's going to have some side effects, but this is the best we can do for you. And that has always really frustrated me. Right. And, and the goal of what I do now, and this is an evolution, and but I think this is where I've gotten to is to make people curious, to help people become curious and to have them question, oh, I thought red meat was bad for me. I thought red meat would make me X, Y, Z. And I thought vegetables were very good for me, but eating a healthy diet, quote unquote, that I believe is healthy. I'm, this is someone's perhaps narrative that's listening to my material. I'm still not very healthy. So maybe it's time for me to become curious and for me to question whether or not I'm eating foods that are evolutionarily consistent for humans or really optimizing my physiology and allowing me to be as healthy as possible. And this is where we get into the idea of, well, I don't think vegetables the leaves of plants, especially, but also the seeds, which are the seeds, roots, excuse me, the seeds, uh, seeds are grains, seeds, nuts, and beans. These are all seeds. These are probably not great for all humans. And what's so interesting is that, and I observe this and it happens over and over in the comments. And it's, I've seen it in the practice in the, in the past when I've worked with people directly is that by eliminating those foods that we all believe are healthy in some, with some modicum of curiosity, a lot of people get better from things that they're told that by their doctor will never get better psoriasis, eczema, whatever, anything, endometriosis, all kinds of things. And they include more nutrient-rich foods, meat and organs. That, that's, that to me is, is really cool, that, that people who don't find answers are able to be curious and find the answers for themselves. I mean, I flew into Costa Rica a few weeks ago, and I met a couple of people in the airport, but one of the people I met in the airport in San Jose says, hey, you're, you're Paul Saladino, you're carnivore MD. Um, I got to tell you my story. I had this really bad plaque psoriasis and I changed my diet to meat and organs and fruit, basically, and it went away. And I think that's cool. I've heard that story a lot recently, which really makes me feel good. But I always ask these people, what did your doctor say? And how many doctors did you see? And invariably, the response is, oh, they all, they all said there was no cure for this. They, none of them had any ideas. None of them ever told me it was my diet. And certainly nobody ever told me it could have been spinach or vegetables right. or beans or almonds or nuts. Well they're handcuffed. I mean, they could have the best intentions, but, um, you know, they have eight minutes with you and they got to give something for the biggest complaint, the biggest symptom. And I mean, I found, I had a lot of skin issues and still dealing with them here and there. And, you know, I was, they had one tool in the toolbox, so they weren't, they didn't have time to ask the right questions. So they're kind of handcuffed in a system that I don't think they probably anticipated when they were in med school. And also there was a, you know, obviously not a focus of uh, teaching the relationship of nutrition to physiology, which really is still, you know, not defined. You know, it's funny. I'm listening. I've been listening. It seems like, you know, we're both eating fruit these days and honey, and maple syrup. And, you know, we've landed in a, a very similar place. You're probably a little more strict than I am. And I'm probably actually paying the price lately for veering off course and have to uh, reconnect with what's worked for me. But, you know, I've been listening to some of the old stuff from Ray Pete. And um, I recently had uh, the guys from the 
energy balance podcast jay feldman and mike favon talking about okay. like the bioenergetic model mm -hmm. um and it's interesting because it's interesting to hear some of the stuff that came out from this man ray pete that seems really convincing and it was like a while ago you know it was you know he was at it for a while and you know not everything he says resonates with me but i've picked up some really important gems i think that have helped me and um but it just kind of proves like here's somebody that was definitely on to something that is now seems to be re-emerging in some way for people that have gone on a similar path like you get you get uh focused on health first you learn that plants are good so you eat a lot of them then you learn that meat is bad so you don't eat any of it and then you don't feel good and then like you go paleo i'll go whole food and then like well carbs are bad so i'll reduce those and then we'll know you should reduce some more and then all of a sudden you find yourself keto and then you find yourself carnivore because why not and it's fun to tinker and try new things and it feels fantastic and then and for some people it seems to be quite sustainable and then for some people it's sustainable for some period of time and then you come to the and then especially for like the active person it's like well there's something missing and then you land on these things that were talked about a long time ago like like fruit and honey and you and you get a different perspective of what sugar is in relationship to our physiology that's been a real uh like mind opening process for me, learning about sugar after vilifying it for so long and um, and its relationship to stress and it being essentially anti-stress, which has been like, whoa. And I just had a recent connection with a family member who has been struggling and they have Lyme disease and I have a history of Lyme. So they reached out to me, someone I haven't talked to in a while. And she's like, I was, you know, my dad, my dad, uh, you're, or, your dad told my dad that you had Lyme and we should connect. And she's like telling me what she's eating and such. And, uh, you know, she's eating kind of like I was like 75 grams of carbs, like no man's land, basically um, eating spinach regularly. I said, um, this is going to sound weird. Gave her a little bit of, uh, you know, a bioenergetic lesson. Not that I'm not skilled enough to really um, teach people this, but I know a little bit. And I said, lose the spinach and double your sugar triple thought it was crazy quadruple so last week which was two weeks after i talked to her she called she said i had to call you i feel totally better and i'm off steroids and she'd been on steroids i think since last year it's like it's it's, it's wild um Something sugar is yeah and i you know i don't know which one had a bigger difference yeah um but but the sugar is is very interesting and you know, learning its relationship to stress is interesting. And I know you you mentioned that, you know, you moved to Costa Rica a few years back. Um, on the stress topic, America's in general, um, high stress, say the least. What have you noticed as far as um, like your general or like acute stress response, you think, from changing your environment from living? I think you were in Texas before you went there. Have you noticed anything um, that shows up like physic physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever from that environmental change? Unquestionably. I mean, I was recently in the United States for two weeks, which is about 13 days too long for me. And 
And uh, I came back and <clears throat> the first day, the first night that I slept in my bed here in Costa Rica, I woke up and I felt like I was on psychedelics or something. I was just, everything felt so different. I got in at like 11 o'clock midnight. I went to sleep. I woke up at 7am and <clears throat> very fortunate to have a house that's basically in the jungle, overlooking the jungle and the ocean. And I sleep with my window or my sliding glass doors open. So it's just a screen. So I wake up and it's just jungle sounds, monkeys. It's just, everything felt so different. It's just a completely different world. And it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about because I, I fear that people will hear that and say, well, that's not available to me. I can't do that. And I think that's kind of a defeatist scarcity mindset. I think that if people want to live a lifestyle, they can create it. There, there are ways to create it. Um, but I think that it also speaks to a bigger idea, which is that humans are built to be in nature. There's this idea of landscapes of despair, which is lots of right angles and concrete and steel. And probably this nutrition for the eyes and the brain of long vistas, which activate the rest and digest nervous system known as the parasympathetic nervous system, fractals, these cascading patterns and mathematical, you know, Fibonacci sequence, like, you know, equations programming the way trees and leaves occur in nature. And there, there is, there is a programming in us as humans. And I think there's a programming in terms of food, which is pretty similar individual to individual. There's going to be some variation, but there's also a programming in terms of our environment. And I mean, look at all the plants you have behind you. Like there's a reason I think humans like this, right? We, we like the green, perhaps the plants have, they're giving off oxygen as they're respiring, right? And they're, they're fractal patterns. There's this broken symmetry, these curved lines behind you, and that's calming for humans. Mm -hmm. And in cities, even small cities like Austin, Texas, or other places, it's harder to find that. There's a reason the suburbs exist. On my recent trip, I spent time in New York City, which was jarring, uh, to say the least, but there's, it's, there's a reason Central Park is in the middle of New York. People need some sort of a of a respite from the the frenetic pace of buildings and horns and sirens in the city. And New York City is kind of like a crucible where things get done, but I I think it's essentially the opposite of what humans need to thrive long term. And so, but I yeah, there's a huge difference in the way that I feel here versus the way that I feel in the United States. And I wanted to also piggyback on what you were saying about sugar, because this concept of curiosity keeps coming up in this podcast. And it, it's a good challenge for people to think about this for themselves. How genuinely curious are you? Are we, am I, are you in our lives? How genuinely curious are we? It, there, there are very few things as deeply ingrained in the human psyche from a nutritional perspective as the notion that sugar is bad for humans. And so I've often tried to couch it a little more softly, but really the, the question becomes, what if sugar is not bad for humans? <laughs> and, and how many people can even hold that thought in their mind? I certainly couldn't a few years ago. And, and, and legitimately consider both sides of that discussion. We know that sugar, and by sugar, I really mean fruit, sugar, and honey. I'm not a huge fan of white table sugar because it doesn't have any nutrients. There's no micronutrients in white table sugar, but 
physiologically, you could make an argument that white table sugar is perhaps not that bad for humans, but let's just talk fruit and honey for a moment first. There's lots of good evidence that fruit and honey, which are canonically considered to be sugar and, and get lumped in here, are going to cause diabetes, but there's no evidence for that. And there's a diet from the 1940s. I think the guy's name was William Kempner or something, kind of a shady, interesting fellow. Of, and he basically gave diabetics white rice and table sugar. That was the majority of their diet. And they invariably lost 50 to 100 pounds and their diabetes no was reversed. Over so, how long? Do you know how long? I think it was weeks to months, probably months. Yeah, I can send you. It's called the rice diet. You can find it. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, yeah my mind has changed. I mean, I have a, uh, uh, like a homemade thing my wife made, a little bowl that we keep organic cane sugar in for our coffee. I know you don't like coffee. <laughs> coffee and um and we have to refill it so more so much more often now because i'm just eating directly out of it and you're right there's probably not any like nutrition in it but it's rocket fuel energy and more importantly um because i was like low carbs so long i feel like i i really did some like damage and you know it might not just be that i have a history of alcoholism lots of drug use and the standard american diet like i did damage so i don't know if there's a hole i'm still digging myself out of but um if i have uh like times where i'm stressed which is still often for me like i med like i do a lot of things to try to navigate stress but man i would say Almost 100% of the time, a tablespoon of sugar with a pinch of salt in it or two. And within 10 minutes, it's like the stress response is down. And that is more valuable than the vitamin and the mineral that I'm chasing food. Like when you say there's no nutrients, there isn't. But there's something else going on. There's pure energy that your body doesn't have to work hard to, to get. And glucose and fructose are nutrients. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking you could drink a glass of orange juice and get thymine and vitamin C along with your glucose and fructose. Or you can have white table sugar and glucose and fructose and white table sugar, which is sucrose, are nutrients as well. So I don't want to, so I think that, that there's an argument to be made there, interestingly. And I know that there are people listening to this just about to turn it off. They're reaching for the dial thinking <laughs> these guys are talking about uh. sugar how can this be good? And so th that's probably a whole separate podcast that we can do, or that I've talked about on my podcast. Like how could sucrose be good for humans? Well, guess what? If you don't eat glucose, your liver makes it. So glucose is a very valuable molecule for humans and probably one of the most critical quote nutrients in, in our environment and fructose, despite it's being vilified. So um, vehemently actually is probably not that bad for humans, especially in whole food form. And the, the interesting thing that I've sort of come across speaking to some folks in the Ray Pete community as well, I've had a gentleman named Georgie Dinkov on my podcast multiple okay. times, is, is that if you really look at this research, if you can hold curiosity, what you find is that there's not a lot, there's really no research to suggest that fruit is bad for humans. And there's really no research to suggest that fruit juice is bad for humans. There's research to suggest that high fructose corn syrup, sweetened beverages, look to be bad for humans. 
But high fructose corn syrup is a different entity than sucrose. Sucrose is a disaccharide of glucose and fructose. And this goes back to organic chemistry, glucose, fructose, whatever, like organic sugar, quote, molecules. Well, high fructose corn syrup is made from corn syrup. So they start with corn, which is going to have additives and contaminants, glyphosate. It's mm. all GMO now in the United States. And they make a corn syrup. And that, that's an industrial process of making the corn syrup. And then you have an isomerization step where they have to isomerize glucose into fructose. So corn syrup is pure glucose because there's no fructose in corn. So then they have to isomerize it into fructose and then they have to extract it. And in the process of making high fructose corn syrup, historically, there's been significant concerns about mercury contamination and alkali extraction. And the high fructose corn syrup industry is not really keen on discussing this, but I found Imagine research papers. Yeah, I found research papers suggesting that at least in 2010, they claim this is not the case anymore, but I'm not convinced it's gone away. High fructose corn syrup had significant amounts of mercury in it. Really? And so, yeah, the devil is in the details. And if you're, look, if you have organic cane sugar and it's extracted without harsh chemical process from a cane sugar plant, it probably isn't that bad for humans. And if you're, if you're drinking orange juice that you squeezed yourself or you're eating an orange or an apple, or you're, you're putting honey in your tea or you're, or you're just eating honey um, in, in, in sort of, uh, you know, concomitant fashion to your exercise and that honey is local, raw and organic. I mean, I, there's not a lot of evidence. And if people can wrap their head around that, they'll probably feel better. And as you mentioned, sugars, specifically fruit juice, fruit, honey, organic table sugar are pretty anti-stress. It's going yeah. to lower cortisol and, and stress is a huge problem for humans too. And we know the flip side to be true also, and you hinted at this as well, the removal of sugars, the removal of carbohydrates, which can also be starches from the human diet, that increases stress. And I was keto for years as well, Les. So I get it. And I think that humans can do quote damage. And I, I mean, I've got a lot of people after me now. I mean, there's the vegans and then there's the strict <laughs> carnivores and there's the keto community because I've piss them all off now. And I'm sure I'll keep pissing people off as I evolve my thinking. But um, yeah, I don't really notice much of it anymore. But yeah, I, I really believe that being keto and being that low carb is harmful for humans long-term. And we see it. And again, it's just about how much curiosity can we hold before we sort of fall back onto dogma. I heard this and then I'll, I'll stop ranting. Non-confirmatory discovery by humans is it lowers dopamine in our brains. So this is wild. Wait, this say that I, again. What was that word? Non non-confirmatory discovery. And I'm just making up words to describe something. Okay. Basically, if we learn a fact that contradicts what we believe, that lowers dopamine in our brains. Oh, so we probably don't we don't like that. We don't like that, which is interesting. <laughs> I think what we like more is reinforcing confirmation bias, reinforcing ideas that we believe, which is why humans go to their grave believing things that are perhaps patently false and obvious to other people. But it's it's hard for some of us to, to embrace changing ideas. And that to me was so interesting that as humans, we are ruled by dopamine. I think in so many ways, 
as humans in 2023, our, one of our greatest challenges is understanding the ways that our evolution is getting in the way of who we are today because our environment is so much different than it was 50,000 years ago. We've evolved, we've evolved to seek carbohydrates in the form of fruit and honey, and now junk food manufacturers can make a Snickers bar with high fructose corn syrup and gluten and seed oils, and that our body thinks that's fruit because it's sweet, and so we like it, and it's reinforcing. Or we eat Cheetos, which have fake hormone, you know, fake flavors, MSG, and it has seed oils. And again, it, it's hijacking hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, and we're powerless to all this programming in our brains. And I think it's the same way with dopamine and learning. We are not humans; are not great at staying curious, <laughs> probably because of this dopamine drop when we find things that are not going to confirm what we believe. And so that, that's a huge challenge. But what we also know, and what we've talked about in this podcast is that being curious and being willing to learn new things, being willing to experience that, that dopamine drop, getting over that hump leads us to so much greater understanding of things in the long term, and often better quality of life. If we can stay curious and not get stuck in our sort of calcified, petrified right. coffin mentally, Definitely a better quality of life because you're losing conflict that you're creating at a, between your left ear and your right ear. Yeah. Like you will create a, a conflict, um, a battle in your mind. You said um, a moment ago, I don't notice it anymore. When you alluded to that, um, you're taking a bunch of heat from people. It's funny. You have, um, I, I don't know if this, I think it was your Facebook group. Originally, I don't know if you created it, but there's a Facebook page I'm on and it seems to be about you. And um, I can't I can't stomach it anymore. It's like a war zone. You know, it's like, I don't know what it is. People just attacking you and then, um, you know, a few people defending because they're just mad that you're eating fruit. And it's I, like, maybe it's a carnivore group. I don't know. I think it's I'm, like I'm, animal based something yeah yeah it might be an animal-based group with heart and soil we we did make an animal-based facebook group and i i've heard i'm not in there i've heard it's good i've I've heard it's degenerated a little bit yeah so i wanted to ask about that like how do you um man as you know the importance of stress i mean it seems like it's played a role in you relocating you clearly value this a lower stress environment you're in, you're living in tropical paradise. And, um, you know, you know, there's comments you've uh, acquired and cultivated um, and deservingly so a pretty big audience. And you can't have an audience that big without haters. Are there anything, is there any strategy or like outlook that you've used to help you get to the point where you're like, I don't notice it where or does it really not affect you to, to know that people are hating on you? And if so, like, what's your process to, to get better at that and to let that shit go? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of ways you can do it. You can just not look at it. Um, so I have a social media team now. And one of the most valuable things about the social media team is that I don't have Instagram or, or TikTok on my phone. Oh, nice. Or Twitter. Um, and it means that the team helps me 
by, I mean, sometimes I'm in the comments answering comments, but I don't look at the comments after I've answered comments, right? Um, I'm in my primary DMs, but that's about it. Just being aware of who's messaging me there, but I don't, I don't see it. I, I get feedback through the buffer of someone else who's not me, who's not this psyche. Okay. So that's, that I think is the best way to do it because I alluded to this earlier, humans cannot handle a million voices or a hundred thousand voices or 10,000 voices or a thousand voices. We probably can't even handle a hundred yeah, freaking for voices. Sure. For sure. You know, a tribe Dunbar's number is 150. So this is the idea that in our evolution, as tribes became greater than 150 people, we probably split off into new tribes. I don't think humans can handle more than 150 individual relationships in their life. It's just not in our brain. And this is just an anthropologist or a, you know, sort of a, a psychologist theory about this. But you know, if your Instagram is more than 150 people following you, it's too much for you to see, right? Th those comments are too much. And even if we do a post, and there's a thousand comments, which is common or more, 98% are going to be positive. But I know that I'm going to see the 2% or less. There might be 10 negative comments out of a thousand, right? So much, way less than one, you know, 1%. And I'm, I'm going to focus on those 10. Those 10 are what I'm going to see. And so that's the problem with humans is that we're tuned to negative opinions of us in the tribe because we're thinking, what do these 12 hunters around me think about the way that I'm hunting? What are these 35 people in the tribe, the men and the women that I'm in the tribe with think about me? And if one person says, hey man, you gotta share more of the bone marrow with us or hey man, you gotta eat, you can't eat the liver. You know, you gotta share it with the kids and, the, and well, okay, I, I gotta listen to that person's opinion. When you've got a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand or a million people or more, it's just too much, right? You're only going to focus on the negatives. And that, that's something that's not productive for humans. It drives us mad. It drives us mad. And you see this on Twitter, people just posting and just throwing virtual poop at each other right. all day long. And it's just not productive and it does create stress. And so my goal is to do good work. And I had a friend tell me once, only you know the quality of your work. So my goal is to be honest with myself and to know the quality of my work and then just to make good work regardless of what people think about it. And that's why I have a social media team. And mostly my social media team is one guy who's screening the majority of the comments and the DMs or anything, you know, and he's relaying it to me. And then a couple of video editors. So that's so the primary that, strategy. Like you have a, a boundary that you've created. A buffer. Yeah, okay. It's not, it's not, it's not good for humans to see that. Right. So you have to believe in the quality. You need some feedback because if people say, and different communities are different. The YouTube community is very dogmatic. They want to talk about carnivore. And every time I talk about carbohydrates, there's a million, a million, you know, I'm, I'm emphasizing, I'm exaggerating. There's a, this is my brain, right? It's, it's a million. It's, it's 10 people in the comments saying, I can't believe he's eating fruit and honey, blah, blah, blah. And so that's the, that's the problem. And you just ignore it and you just know you're doing good work and um, somebody has to buffer that for you. Otherwise it just, it drives you literally mad. It's just also, too much for humans. You also have the strategy, know that you're doing good work. I mean, you have a sense of self-worth and belief in yourself Yeah, and, and that's really hard. I remember, um, I mean, that's something I, 
I feel like I've been working on probably ever since my parents split up when I was like four years old, like believing that I'm good enough or whatever. And um, I remember getting my first negative comment and it like destroyed me. And it was after like a hundred good ones. And it like, dis- like, I was like sick in my, like I felt adrenaline in my gut. It was not good. It's fucking it's, weird. It's horrible. And social media is valuable because look at all the lives that we are affecting positively. It's a valuable thing and say what you will, all the social media platforms are captured and they're censoring people and frustrating ways. And I'm getting censored in frustrating ways. Even today on Instagram, it's frustrating, oh, really? but yeah, I can tell you about it. Um, but it, uh, but it, it, it's a valuable tool. It's just, it's a, it's a sharp knife that you can cut yourself with, you know, yeah. social media is a freaking sharp kitchen knife. And if you give it to yourself and you run your finger along the edge by reading the comments, you are going to bleed. And it's have, just not worth it. Do you have Paul, any, um, practice in your life, maybe put them under, I would put them under the umbrella of like mindfulness-based practices, uh, any uh, practices around stillness, meditation. I know you surf. I don't know if you still do. I've heard you mention that. I assume that there's a meditative component to surfing because when you're, you're on the board, I assume you can't be mentally elsewhere. Otherwise. Surfing is, surfing is super meditative. I mean, I, it's most of what I do are sort of those practices. Um, Yeah. I mean, I surf every morning. It's my passion. That's why I live in Costa Rica. That's a big reason. Um, I think that this is a little bit off topic, but I think that humans are much more productive when we get to do things that are really fun. When we have a hobby, a passion that is at the center of our life and we get to do that. And I think a lot of people don't do that or don't know what that is, whether it's golf or bocce ball or juggling or slackline or ballet or gymnastics or uh, soccer or surfing or skydiving. Like those have always been at the center of my life, not specifically those things, but skiing, snowboarding, mountaineering, and surfing have been the things that I have quote chased my whole life. And they've made me who I am because for whatever reason, I based my life around those always, not always, most of the time. Even my residency at the University of Washington after medical school, I went to the University of Washington partly because it was in the Cascades or it was near the Cascades and I could and I could snowboard and ski in the winter. And I knew that I would have access to wilderness while I was in residency. Unfortunately, I did medical school at the University of Arizona in Tucson and I didn't have a lot of great desert hobbies. So those four years, I didn't have that joy, but throughout medical school, I did take trips to go ski and it was a key thing for me. But as humans, we are much better creators in the world and much better conduits for any sort of positive energy when we get to do the things that bring us real freaking joy. And for me, surfing is that. So I surfed this morning. My cup is full. Like I got out there with my friends. I was in the ocean. It's warm and sunny. My circadian rhythm is in check. And I got to just freaking have fun. Just have fun. That is so key for humans. And we have really lost touch and forgotten how important that is. We don't play and play is like a requirement. It's required. People think, oh, I'll play when I get to this goal, but it's so required to do that. And a lot of those practices are meditative because they're in nature. And so surfing, yes, meditative. When I come back from surfing, I sit in my pool and I do breath holding because I want to practice being able to hold my breath for surfing because sometimes you are out surfing and a big wave comes. Like 
not a 50 foot wave, but like a six foot wave or an eight foot wave, which is really freaking big for people that don't surf. Like that's a big wave to have land on your head. A six that foot wave on your head. That sounds big to me. I don't surf. I wouldn't big want wave. that. Yeah. Like a, a, an eight foot wave is a massive wave to take on the head um, or a six so foot wave. Can I, double, can I double click that a little bit? Um, you do breath holding. So what style are we talking about? Do you just, what's your process there? So not something to ever do by yourself, right? But I have a pool at my house and I sit on the edge of the pool and one of my friends is there watching me and I just breathe deeply, but not overly deeply because I'm not trying to blow off CO2. So I want the CO2 in my blood. If you, if you hyperventilate like a Wim Hof style, I think this is dangerous. You will blow off your carbon dioxide. You'll get respiratory alkalosis. And that allows you to hold your breath longer because carbon dioxide is the signal to the brain that it needs to breathe, not a lack of oxygen. So if you hyperventilate, you can hold your breath until you pass out. And that's not what you want. I wanna go under that water and have a very clear instinct, a very clear signal to my body to tolerate the CO2 that's building up. And I know when it's time to breathe before I pass out under the water. So doing Wim Hof hyperventilation breathing around the water is really dangerous, really dangerous because you can pass out super easily. So I've done Wim Hof breathing in the past. And like I said, I'm not a huge fan, but when you hyperventilate, I can hold my breath for four minutes, four minutes. That's crazy. And then you pass out and you don't have any warning that you're passing out. And so you don't want that in the pool. So I sit on the edge of the pool. I calm myself. I don't breathe deeply. I just breathe intentionally. And then I go under the water and I calm myself and I try and hold my breath for as long as I can under the water. And there's always a person watching me from the edge so of the these, pool. So this is inhale, then hold or exhale? Inhale. I, I inhale, then I go under the water, right? Gotcha. And so without hyperventilating, a minute and a half, maybe two minutes on a good breath hold. If I hyperventilate, I can hold for four minutes, but that's not what I want because then it's four minutes and then you die. Then you black out, right? I want two minutes or a minute and a half. And I want the last 15 seconds to feel the carbon dioxide building up in my body because that is a very hard thing to tolerate as a human. And this is basically static apnea. I'm not exerting myself, right? And people should not take what I'm doing and use this as a protocol. You should work with a coach, work with an expert on this. And I'm not an expert and you should always have somebody with you in the pool. So do not do this. You don't need an expert, just practice. Practice, but, <laughs> but you have <laughs> do to we have need somebody a disclaimer? No. You have to have somebody there with you. You have to, because you can die. People do die. They shallow water blackout doing this and they die. And that's not what we want to happen. But so wait, but static. you're doing this primarily to prepare you. This is relevant, uh, more so to your hobby, to your sport. This is yes. like for when shit hits the fan, the wave hits you, that you're more likely to not die from the wave. Yeah, um, not so, panic. Gotcha. So it's it's more of like a, it's specific to your skill that you're training for. Well, tell me about the minute and a half, two minutes when you're under the water. So you're doing the hold underwater. It's underwater, right? And so this what is goes a through the mind while yeah. you're under. It's calming for the mind while you're under. And then between holds, I'm basically meditating. It's just a, a simple mindfulness practice, watching the breath between holds when I'm out of the water. It's meditative. I'm just breathing. Right. And you're, I'm very in touch with my body because I can feel it. When you go under the water, you can feel your heart beating, right? And you can feel your heart going slow or going fast. And it's very clear. 
um, what's happening with your physiology. And the goal is just to calm your physiology. So you lose the least amount of oxygen, you use the least amount of oxygen and you can hold your breath the longest. And this is in preparation for dynamic breath holds that happen while I'm surfing. So another thing I can do is do a dynamic breath hold where I do five pull-ups and then I jump in the water and try and hold my breath. And that is much harder, much harder. That's more, that's going to mimic what I have, what happens in surfing more. But the idea is to train my body and my brain to tolerate excess carbon dioxide because I've had instances almost every week, you know, I mean, I surf in a place where the waves are kind of intense sometimes they're heavy waves. Um, and it means that if a big wave comes and it, I, I get caught in the big wave or I crash on a wave, um, I'm going to be under the water for not a minute, but sometimes a little bit of time. And it's after I've been paddling. So it's a dynamic and it's like, I'm running and then I have to hold my breath. And that is scary sometimes, especially yeah. when you're held down for longer than you want to be held down. And I've had moments where I'm under the water and I'm thinking, I really, really want to breathe right now. And I can't breathe. And I don't know how long before I come up to the surface. And eventually you come up to the surface. And if people haven't experienced this, it's one of the more terrifying things that I've experienced in my life. Like the burning of carbon dioxide in your lungs and your brain, like your whole body is saying, breathe, breathe. And you can't because you're underwater. Yeah, there's it's a difference between stress when it's voluntary or involuntary. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah. And then you come up and there's, if there's another wave behind it, you may have to hold your breath a second time or a third time. And so it's just this training your body to be calm in those situations. And it can mean the difference between life and death. Now, the waves that I'm surfing are usually not life and death waves, but it's, it's enough that it's like, did I, did I get through that calmly today? Or did I have kind of a scary moment today um, that wasn't very fun? And so you asked me about the process when I hold my breath, that basically I just, I'm calm on the edge of the pool. I, I, I'm sitting on the edge. I drop into the pool. I have a weight at the bottom of the pool that I'm holding. And I just mm. sit at the bottom of the pool. And sometimes I close my eyes. Sometimes my eyes are open, but it's just, I just try to think about an awareness. I'm just aware of how my body feels. Yeah, I try to feel my heart beating. How many rounds all. do you usually do in a session? Three or four. And then how much time in between the holds when you're chilling out? Um, it's just a subjective thing when it feels like my body ready? has calmed down. Yeah, I would say it's probably three or four minutes. And there's all sorts of practices you can do. I've done where you hold your breath for a minute static. You come up and you take one breath, then you hold your breath for another minute, then you take a breath, then you hold your breath for another minute, then you take one breath, then you hold your breath for another minute. And static is different than dynamic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a moment ago, like doing five pull-ups and, and then holding your breath and it reminded me, I think I heard you, it might've been on, uh, is it Georgie? What's his last name? Dinkov. It might've been on that episode. I could be wrong, but you were talking about musculature and that you've noticed without like going to the gym an ability since you've added carbohydrates to retain muscle more easily. Um, is that still, I don't know how long ago it was that you said that, but do you find that, that that's been consistent? I mean, you seem, you always seem like a very fit guy and, um, like, do you feel like that's keeping up? Yeah. And some of that might be my genetics. I think I have fairly muscular genetics, but I think what I was talking about with Georgie was this notion that 
if, and this gets back to kind of the bioenergetic perspective, if we're not stressed, because cortisol is catabolic, right? And the word anabolic means muscle building and catabolic means muscle breaking down or just tissue breaking down. It could be any tissue. So cortisol is a catabolic hormone. So I think that too often people over-exercise. And if we have a healthy level of sex hormones, testosterone is beneficial for both men and women. If you have a healthy level of anabolic hormones like testosterone, the androgens, and again, these are important for women as well because women need to be strong um, for all sorts of things in their lives. And your cortisol is not elevated. It gets to this idea of the free testosterone to cortisol ratio. Then your body should hold on to muscle without much exertion. And I was actually talking to Georgie yesterday on a podcast episode that'll be out next week. There's evidence that from a cardiovascular perspective, you can do sprints of 15 to 30 seconds a few times a week, you know, totaling maybe three to five minutes of exertion per week and have a similar level of cardiovascular fitness or better than someone who does hours of chronic low-level cardio during the week. So there, there is this idea like, I don't really do much weightlifting anymore. I surf and anyone that surf knows, okay, that's, that's going to work your upper body, but it's not lifting weights. Like I paddle when I surf and that's all I do. I'll do some pull-ups occasionally, but most of the time, all I do is body weight. And so you I, think it's a suppression of the cortisol allowing, cause the cortisol and the testosterone are inversely related in terms of, in terms of muscle building. Yes. So you think, so it's really, um, the stress, it's really the managing of the stress that allows support, you to, to maintain the muscle. And it's the carbohydrates that allow you to manage the stress. Carbohydrates help manage stress. And on the flip side, it's the nutrients needed to support healthy sex hormone function for men or women. And now we're back to food. Where do those nutrients come from? Well, they come from meat and organs primarily. Right. So this is really interesting. So I mentioned hardened soil earlier. Yeah, let's One talk the- about one of the my coolest. son and I have been enjoying your testicles. <laughs> I'm sure amazing. that'll be edited and could be used. Yeah, you guys can use that however you want. I hope that makes it into a highlight reel somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so there's like one of the coolest things that I've done is build this company called Hard and Soil. And we make desiccated organ supplements. So basically we make, you know, we take heart and liver and kidney and spleen and pancreas or testicle. For women, we make one that has ovary and uterus and fallopian tubes and bone marrow and all kinds of stuff. And we put it in a capsule so you can freeze dry it from a grass-fed cow and put it in a capsule. Now, I want people to eat the organs, but it's hard to get fresh testicles. And it's hard. I've never seen a grocery store selling ovaries or uterus or fallopian <laughs> tubes. I've never been, I've never heard of a woman who, I've never met a woman. I'm sure somewhere in the world, a woman exists who has eaten a uterus or an ovary, like a fresh ovary or uterus. But these are valuable things for humans and the freeze drying process preserves so many of the nutrients. So I thought it was so cool to make this company to like give people a bridge to get the organs. If you can get fresh organs, that's amazing, but it's just a bridge to get people the organ nutrients that they're not going to get otherwise. So you're taking whole package, which is a uh, desiccated testicle containing supplement. And if you look at like, one of the cool things I do is I'll look at the reviews we get on the supplements um, from the company and I'll, I'll read them in podcast reads and stuff for my podcast. And there's the coolest anecdotes are in there, man. I mean, I read one yesterday and the title was like the strongest ovulation ever. And this woman was talking about how she was taking the desiccated ovary 
uh, fallopian tubes and uterus supplement, which is called her package. And she felt like she had her strongest ovulation ever. She said she was, she said it was the most lovely cervical mucus, which is strange to guys to say that. She, <laughs> and then she said she okay. sent the most fertile, the most feral ovulation text ever. And then she described the ovulation text. She said she texted the guy she was dating and said she wanted to smell him and that she couldn't wait to merge their microbiomes because that was part of like getting to know each other. And she was just like, it was just the most hilarious thing that like people's lives. Do, do are, women ever take the whole package? Do they ever take the Sometimes, test? and testosterone can be beneficial for women, but there's, I think that it's better for women to take the ovaries and the uterus and the fallopian tubes, like the corresponding organ. Okay. Um, but, and then men will write us stuff about the whole package all the time. Like, oh, you know, I have morning erections now, or my, I mean, sometimes they write more crass, interesting things. I'm chasing my wife around now, you know, it's, <laughs> it's cool. And you think like, wow, this is really helping people. And if you can get fresh testicles, do it. Um, or fresh, you know, liver is even great, but that's a cool thing. And so this is to your point that libido muscle maintenance for both men and women, lean muscle mass, loss of fat is, is sort of a, this, this two-sided equation where it's minimize the stress probably with diet and lifestyle, you know, do eat some carbohydrates and then give your body the nutrients it needs to make the hormones and to be fertile and virile. And those are mostly found in animal foods. So like meat and organs. And so that's, that's the cool thing. So when you do both of those things, it's pretty incredible what happens to humans. And that's, that's exciting to see because I mean, like we have this opportunity as humans to live this joyous, like rich, fertile, fecund, you know, like life is great. And romantic partners and sex and, you know, a libido, these are healthy, amazing things that should be celebrated in the proper context for humans and people getting that stuff back and muscle mass and energy to go to the gym and energy to do the things they want to do in their life. Like that's what life is about. And that's cool to see it happening. Yeah. Personally, I, um, I try to eat the actual organs, but it's limited. Um, the like beef liver, I found a way to make it palatable for me by making a pate and then I'll dip like pork rinds in it or something, or put it next to, and eat it with eggs. And if I'm really lucky, you know, and I like bone marrow, I feel like that's easy to enjoy. And um, I recently got a batch. It's been a while from a farmer. I got some sweetbreads, which is the uh, pancreas. The thymus. And thymus. Yeah. The thymus, which looks really weird, but I would say is probably the best tasting. It's really any. good. It's really good. So like, it's still del- like, it's called sweetbreads for me. Re- it's delicious. But outside of that, and I've had heart, heart is kind of, I'm kind of indifferent to outside of that. Um, I haven't explored that much. Like I've never found a uh, kidney to be tolerable, but my, I guess my game plan is any day that I'm not eating any, or if I go a couple of days, then I'll start to supplement. Um, and heart and soil has been great. Like we just always have a few bottles in the pantry and, um, and I go in waves, like how, like phases, you know, cause I'll make, let's say liver pate with like a pound of liver. And then I'll like gnash on it for like a week, little bit each day. And then, um, and then I'll go like several days without any, and then I'll supplement a little bit. So I'm eating like the real organ, maybe once or twice a month. And then sprinkling it, sprinkling in the supplements with like no method to the madness, just like whatever bottle it grabs. I just try to make sure I grab the one that's not her package. Don't, yeah, maybe don't grab that. One. <laughs> yeah. The whole, yeah, the men's, not the women's. But the thymus is interesting that you bring that one up because 
Um, very few will know this, but the thymic extract, there's a peptide in thymus that's found in the desiccated thymus or, you know, probably like a raw or a lightly cooked thymus called thymogelin. And thymogelin has been studied in kids and found in randomized blinded studies to decrease respiratory tract infections. So it's cool that like eating an organ that's involved in the immune system appears to benefit adult and child immune systems. I mean, why are we surprised, right? Just like eating testicles appears to benefit people from a testicular health perspective and the hormones that come from it. So there are interesting, unique peptides in these organs that do support us, but thymus is super valuable. Like you said, the thymus is an organ that sits behind the sternum and it tends to regress as we age, but at least in animal studies, when they give thymic extracts to animals, the thymus grows in size and the immune function appears to improve based on several metrics. So people talk I actually, about that. I, I yeah. thought I was having a lung issue once and I went and had a, you know, they put you in the tube, the MRI. Yeah. And that was the comment on my report. And I'm 45 now. So I was probably like 42-ish when it happened. And the one comment on the report was that I still had my thymus intact. And the guy, the guy that reads it was like surprised. And I was like, that's cool. And it's funny, um, you mentioned, what was the name of the peptide you mentioned? Thymodulin. Because I, when I was at going through some different like functional and integrative docs when I was dealing with like Lyme and mold and parasites, they gave me um, thymosin alpha one and thymosin beta four. I, I might've botched the name of those, but they were giving me thought and these were not cheap thymus um, peptides. And I had to inject them in my belly, which I hated. And I, they did something like they helped. Um, I felt like they kind of revved up the immune system, yeah. which is kind of a double-edged sword sometimes, but, um, but man, it's in there. Like I would much rather eat a couple bites sweet <laughs> or take like, a capsule with thymus in it. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Yeah. I have I a really question think that the organs, what's, what's the deal thyroid. with thyroid? Cause that's one that I don't see. I don't know. I assume there's like rules about it or something. Cause maybe there's risks involved, but how come that's not in like the menu option? Is there a reason? Yeah, well, because if you if you eat the thyroid, thyroid, just like all the other organs, does contain like bioactive hormones. And so it's kind of dangerous to give people thyroid hormones. And it, hmm. it's just, it's something that we probably will offer at some point. It's just like people who have thyroid issues, I want them to understand the root cause of their thyroid issues before they just supplement with a thyroid. But many people who have thyroid damage from, um, can I pause for one second? Yeah. Sorry, man. I knew that was going to happen. It's, it's like okay. My, my raw have, milk delivery. I'll have to decide whether we want to edit it or not. It was nice to hear you <laughs> speak Spanish. How would you rank your ability to speak Spanish? Uh, five out of 10. Okay. It sounded pretty smooth. You had me fooled, but I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think we're talking about thyroid Thyroid, yeah. So yeah. thyroid is a little tricky because thyroid, desiccated thyroid will have thyroxine and levothyronine, you know, liothyronine, so T4 and T3 in it. And so people can overdo it and they often do. So okay. um, yeah, I mean, so organs risks. contain like legit hormones, you know, right. and, you know, our testicle supplement at heart and soil contains bioactive androgens. We've had it tested. And so- really? Yeah. And so there's a oh, certification up in my that dose. we did. There's a certification that we did at Hard and Soil called Informed Sports. And 
the reason you do this is to allow professional athletes to take your supplements to say, Hey, there's nothing, oh, there's nothing gotcha. funny in the supplements, but they're informed sports has never tested a testicle supplement before. And so <laughs> all of our supplements at heart and soil come back fine. They're all clean because we just put organs in the supplements, but the whole package supplement does not pass informed sports testing because it's full of androgens because it's a testicle, you know? And so it's, it actually contains hormones that are from testicles, testosterone, androstenedione, multiple androgens in there because it's a testicle. And so that one cannot be informed sports certified. Now, those are not, those are naturally occurring. We didn't add those. Most of what informed sports is doing is testing for supplements that are tainted where they're adding, you know, hormones. Right. But in this case, it's actually in the testicle. And it's in an active form. So you could eat that and it's like getting a, a small dose of, of testosterone. Yeah. And so there's, there's debate and there's question about the bioavailability of oral hormones, but there are a lot of hormones that are taken orally, um, thyroid hormone, insulin, these things can be taken right. orally and they can have effect. A lot of insulin is given subcutaneously, but you can take hormones orally. Now, what's interesting is that we know that there's a first pass effect. So if you take a steroid hormone, um, orally, um, it, it, a lot of it gets metabolized by the liver, but you can minimize that by eating it with a long chain saturated fat. So surprise, surprise, if you eat a testicle, which contains animal fats that are saturated, it's more bioavailable, but like, we know this, you know, like if you, um, like men who take testosterone replacement cream, like women shouldn't come in contact with the cream. Cause you can put right. a testosterone on your skin and it gets absorbed, right? It's kind of, it, it it goes around the first pass in the liver, but you also don't want to like eat, a woman wouldn't want to eat uh, her husband's testosterone cream. You know, if it was, I, I don't know how she would get it in her mouth if she was like, like kissing his skin where he put it on or something, you know? Is the there any fat in those capsules? So if I take the whole package, should I be eating fat? Make sure Probably there's fat Probably you should eat meal? some fat with it to make it even more bioavailable. Yeah, a little mm. bit of tallow. Yeah. This makes and me want to up my dose and see what happens. I want to yeah. do like a before and after test. Have you had yeah. anybody with that product? Sorry for the women that are listening that might, <laughs> this might not be relevant to. Have you had any uh, body test before and after, after like a round of the whole package to see if that alone was enough to move the needle on testosterone? Well, we've had people, many people subjectively say it was, but I don't know that I've seen any formal labs, but like men gotcha. will say, like I mentioned earlier, right. you know, like, oh, Waking my up is great. Yeah, right. I'm chasing my wife around or I have morning erections or things like this. So it's it's cool to see. It's like, wow, something's working. Gotcha. Yeah. And for the listeners, if you want to um, explore and you're not one to add like the real um, fresh organs into your diet, Paul, what would you recommend for, let, let's say, someone that just wants to introduce as far as your line? Because when you go on your website, it's been a while, but I know you have a pretty comprehensive like menu of, of organ options. I could see in the background for those watching, <laughs> yeah, you have them all out there. Yeah. I mean, what do you recommend someone that just wants to dip their toe in to see you know, if they notice anything? Yeah. So for men, I would say start with whole package. For women, start with her package. And if you have allergy or immune issues, start with something like histamine and immune. And if you want like mental clarity, start with the mood, memory, and brain. So those would be the four to start. But even on the website, which is heartandsoil.co, um, 
you, there's like a tab that says like these, I want something to help with this issue and it'll, it'll give you recommendations for that. But okay. Yeah. 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 And we'll link that in the show notes and thanks. I think you mentioned you will offer um, a discount to the mindful movement listeners. So we'll yeah, happy to. Too. And then um, one other question on, and this is really selfish reasons, the dosing of that. I mean, when you see a serving on there, should I be looking at like one serving of those every meal, every day? What, what's a so reasonable the, approach? Yeah. So it's interesting. So these are desiccated organs, which means we freeze dry them. So you remove the water like below freezing. So that's the idea to preserve as many nutrients as possible. And you can't get it as small as like a regular multivitamin. So six capsules is, is one serving and six capsules is three grams of desiccated, you know, organ material, which is equivalent to a little less than an ounce of organs. So it depends what your goal is. Like if you're taking testicle, you know, six capsules of that one a day seems to be beneficial. If you want a little more, you could even do 12. Um, there's, we have a supplement called beef organs, which is heart, liver, kidney, spleen, and pancreas. And so I think for most people, six capsules a day is a good start, but a lot of people do more. It's just like, how many capsules do you want to swallow? Right. Um, basically you're not eating a supplement, you're eating food you're eating in food. a more convenient form that travels well, et cetera. So it doesn't taste about, like ass. Well, they, they can, right? Like, <laughs> well, liver doesn't travel that well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's great. Uh, I'm really grateful that you created that and that that is an option for people, for people that are always looking to um, fill gaps or next level their health and just play a bigger role in their sense of well-being. It's nice to have tools in the toolkit. And I think that's an outstanding tool to have. And for those that, you know, want to explore the um, the creativity and finesse required to make organs taste delicious, go for it. And for those that want a shortcut, it's just a fantastic tool to have just available. Yeah. Is there any, I want to respect your time, uh, Paul, is there anything else you'd like to chat about or, or mention before I let you go? Um, Man, I guess just, uh, just I, I love this conversation around creativity for people and like curiosity, you know, how to be a creative, curious person. And like, I think stay curious is, is, a, is, is something that I think is so valuable for humans. Like don't, we touched on it early, but I think once we believe that we found the truth, we're in trouble. There's a great line. You've probably read this book, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Are you familiar with that one? I have not. Oh down. my gosh. Your, your listeners will love this book. It's poetry. And it's poetry that is written, I don't know when this guy lived, I think in the early 1900s. It's written from sort of a pseudo Christ figure perspective, but it's not a Christian thing. But there's this character in the book who just people are asking him questions and he responds with answers. And so um, the, the, the little chapters on marriage, on children and on love are really, really beautiful. But there's one on truth and there's a line in it that I think really stood out for me. And it's just, he's talking to the people and just saying, you know, say not that I have found the truth, say that I have found a truth. And so it's just like for humans to believe that we have found a, a fully truth, you know, like we, there's no such thing as the truth. There are truths for each of us and little pieces of, of, beauty and nuggets of gold that are true for us. You know, for me, 
living in Costa Rica, surfing, these are joyous things for me. That is true. Eating organs, I feel good. That is some piece of truth, right? We're looking for truth in nutrition. We're looking for truth in uh, our self-knowledge and relationships and how we move through the world. But to suggest or to believe that we have the truth is, is I think, presumptuous and it, it kills creativity. If you know the truth regarding nutrition, if you've got it all figured out, why are you curious anymore? What else is there to learn? So it's that's the humbling process of continuous discovery, self-discovery, uh, you know, physical discovery, life discovery, ad adventuring, you know, exploring all of these realms. It's about finding truths, but realizing that we're never going to find the whole truth. And that's humbling because that means throughout my whole life, I am going to keep being wrong. And, and once <laughs> I can embrace that and right. realize that the dopamine decline that comes with that is a, is a harbinger of learning and growth, then I'm in a good place. So don't fear, don't be a slave to dopamine, you know, stay curious. Interesting. Well, Paul, I, I want to thank you for taking your time and, and all that you've done. I know a lot, you've helped a lot of people out there and I'm one of them. So uh, I will always be grateful for that. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what twists and turns, you know, and what you change your mind on next. And I'll be open-minded to um, use it hopefully at a healthy way and managing my own dopamine um, and being willing to be wrong, being okay with that, accepting that. And, you know, I look at all the things that I, all the supposedly wrong turns in my past and they're not wrong. Like I've been in jail. I've been arrested a bunch of times. I've had, you know, a lot of what some people would say, like, you know, bad things. And it's like, none of them are really bad unless I choose to look at them that way. They're all, you know, got me to where I am now. And um, with the people in my life that I cherish and, you know, all there is, is like a, a journey. We're on this weird dance and, um, you know, we, you gotta, you gotta keep dancing, you know, don't, uh, don't give up, sit on the couch and know everything, but um, stay curious. Yeah. I, stay curious. Um, thanks. That's, that's a great uh, lesson. And that book, The Prophet, that was written by who you said? Khalil Gibran. Okay. I'll check that out. And for those out there that want to learn more, is it heartandsoil.co for the supplements? Mm -hmm. And, and if they want to learn more about you? Carnivoremd.com. And if you just search carnivoremd on all of the socials, you'll find me. Okay. The TikToks, well, the Instagrams, the YouTubes. Thank you very much, Paul. And for the listeners out there, always grateful for your listening. Um, I hope you got some value out of this and I hope you all have a great day. Well, thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was great to connect with Paul again. Now, I know some of those things we talked about, uh, especially around sugar and stress, might have sound a little strange and we didn't really go very deep into them. If you want to learn more about that, please check out episode 169 with Jay Feldman from the Energy Balance podcast and uh, get, gain a little bit more context around that topic. It's a very interesting topic that also recently has just been very impactful for me. Also, episode 174 with his partner, Mike Fave, also from the Energy Balance podcast. With those two episodes, I think you can get a, a nice entry-level understanding of that concept about how sugar and stress are related. Also, if you want to test out some of Dr. Paul's stuff, I highly recommend it. Go to heartandsoil.co. There's a comprehensive um, menu, as I mentioned, to choose from. He gave some insights here where to start. Use code LESS10 
les10 less 10 in checkout for a discount and if you do test out his supplements um, please share with the community what you notice once again i appreciate your listening always grateful i hope you have a great day